Hi, hi everybody. I am uh, Tony Ganser of 90.3 WCPN, and uh, we'll talk for about 30 minutes about the political economy of film, whatever that means, and uh, we'll figure it out by the end of 30 minutes. And then we'll open it up for your questions, uh, too. So if uh, you want us to address something that we don't get to, uh, feel free to come up and ask your question. That's one of the best times of these events. Uh, so I'd actually like our panelists to say a few words about themselves, if we can go through before we start. Mike? Sure. Um, good evening, everybody. I'm Michael Murphy. I'm the president of Gravitas Ventures. Uh, Gravitas is... Uh, by volume, the largest distributor of independent films and documentaries in the world. Uh, we release, uh, yeah, north of 300 films a year. And we've relocated the entire company from Los Angeles to 30 blocks uh, east <laughs> of here at West 29th in Detroit. So we're really happy to be back in Cleveland. And uh, we really only have two employees left in L.A. Everyone's in Cleveland. Um, we've rehired here. Uh, myself and the other principals are original Clevelanders. And uh, we're running a you know a Hollywood distribution company from Cleveland. We're really happy about that. Um, but that's what we do. We are not on the creative side. I don't read scripts. I'm not on set generally. Mm -hmm. um, we go to film festivals, film markets, and just receive a lot of submissions. We probably look at about 3,000 films a year to pick our 300 that we ultimately release. Mm -hmm. And we put those in theaters, about uh, three dozen a year. Uh, many of them go into the Cleveland cinemas here. And whether it's at um, uh, right over around the corner or, or um, it's the Cedar Lee or Tower City. Um, we also do a lot of, uh, we put films still in uh, on DVD and Blu-ray and in Redbox. There's still a, quite a big business mm -hmm. in, in that physical media or package media space. But our bread and butter has been and still is today, you know, all things digital, all things video on demand. And when the company was started in 2006, uh, you know, Netflix was just uh, red envelopes going back and forth in the U.S. Postal Service. But as video on demand evolved, you know, so did our company. And, um, you know, thankfully we're, we're still doing it and uh, really excited about being in Cleveland. And um, that's, that's probably great. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Dave? Uh, oh, is that applause for me or for him? <laughs> it's for, for everyone. Well, I'm going to yeah. take it all. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Look at that. What a nice guy. Uh, my name is Dave Huffman. I'm the director of marketing for Cleveland Cinemas. I also do all of our special programming, so all of the late shift series, the classic series, the specialty stuff that you do. And uh, I work with people like uh, Michael here to my left. We show a lot of, obviously, a lot of independent films. Everyone that knows uh, the Cedar Lee and the Capitol, that's kind of what we're known for here. But we also operate mainstream theaters like Tower City and Chagrin Cinemas. And we are currently even playing a Gravitas film right now at Tower City. It's a, a new documentary called Tread. So we play a lot of those things. I deal with a lot of uh, distributors, both locally here, obviously, as well as some international ones. So uh, I've had some meetings even, you know, in London and stuff like that, talking to different distributors about bringing some of those films and different programs over here to Cleveland. So I hope you guys come out and watch some of the movies that I've helped bring. That's great. Thank you. Evan. Great. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Evan Miller. I'm the new president of the Greater Cleveland Film Commission. I am a Cleveland born and bred uh, who was out in Los Angeles for the last 15 years as a talent agent representing TV and film actors. Uh, came back here for this opportunity once in a lifetime. 
Our mission is to drive sustained economic growth in the city through TV and film production. It's to bring productions here and serve as ambassadors from them, pretty much from soup to nuts, make sure they have everything taken care of for them to have a good production, and also to serve as ambassadors for the local film community, that a filmmaker uh, community, anybody who's looking to make a film, looking to meet people within the industry, we want to serve as that conduit for it. So uh, we're often the ones that early on in the process as productions are thinking about Cleveland, we're hooking them up, uh, our amazing production coordinator, Mike Went, who's actually over there, location scouting, finding locations, pinning them down, uh, you know, helping to make sure that they have a smooth process from the time they get here to the time they leave. So, That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, so there are so many uh, aspects to this political economy of film. One aspect is going to be kind of the technical and and the the nitty-gritty of getting films to people and also getting films made. But I'd like to start with the creative, if I could, because uh, Parasite winning the Oscar was such a big deal, a South Korean film, which kind of gave a, um, a dark uh, look, but accurate look and creative look at the middle class of South Korea. And... Um, uh, there's a headline here from the Washington Post that there's a lot in this headline, and Dave, maybe if you could comment on this sure. first. It says, Parasite was a triumph for the film industry trapped between the U.S. and China. And in that headline, it makes me wonder about so many things, one of which is, why did Parasite do so well if it's trapped between Hollywood, which is uh, all Avengers and, and mm -hmm. explosions and things, and then countries like China, which have very restrictive policies on what films they'll play or endorse. So what made Parasite special in your view? Well, I think a big part of that quote that you say when it says something trapped between Hollywood and China, because those are the two largest film markets in the world right now. India is also enormous, if yeah, you don't know. Yeah. I mean, India makes so many movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Bollywood films, and, and if you've never seen a Bollywood film, they're highly entertaining. <laughs> I really recommend just checking one out. Every movie is a musical, whether it needs to be or not, and it's great. <laughs> and <laughs> that, that's all I have to say. But so I think that's a lot of what they're saying is that this was a film that wasn't really playing up to a mainstream American audience or wasn't just calculated. If you haven't noticed lately, there's been a lot of uh, Hollywood films that suddenly have a scene that takes place in China or that they have a Chinese lead actor because they're trying to make those films more sellable to the Chinese market. And there's even a different cut of those films sometimes that play in China where they expand those roles so that that person who may be in the version we're seeing here maybe has 20 minutes of screen time, but over there they've got 40 minutes of screen time to try to play up to that uh, audience. And then you have a film like Parasite that First off, it's a masterpiece, and if you haven't seen Parasite by now, you must see it. It is an amazing movie. I've seen it three times myself, and that's not nearly enough. <laughs> and I think it's just one of those films that kind of redefined so many things because it was that movie that became a force. People became so passionate about it that people like me that just kept telling everybody, like almost like evangelical like you know, missionaries for that movie, mm. and that's what happened that night at the Oscars. As soon as it won Best Screenplay that night, I was like, oh, it's not just going to get the token best foreign language film. It actually has a chance to win best picture. And I think that's really the most positive thing that's happened at the Oscars in forever because it shows that there's an audience out there beyond just those two main markets that they're playing to. You're nodding your head, Evan. You agree with that? Well, no, completely. I mean, it's it's very much a global market, and, and I'm sure Michael can speak to this, but with Netflix, with Amazon, Hulu – the barrier to entry to get your film distributed is a lot lower than it used to be. It's not easier per se, but there are a lot more avenues 
to get things out. And people aren't turned away so much by subtitles or where a film is made. It's really, at the end of the day, it's about the content. And this film proved good content, no matter what language, no matter where it comes from, is going to be successful and it's going to rise to the top. And this was a good example of, you know, kind of getting caught in the zeitgeist and but people being, you know, as, as you were alluding to, willing to talk about it and willing to tell their friends and it grew from there. Are there particular films, though, uh, Michael, that do better, especially foreign films? Or can we have a, a critical, you know, a drama satire like Parasite? Or are there documentaries you said you work mostly in? Is there some kind of foreign film that does better than others, would you say? I mean, I think it's relative, though. I mean, what is it? Just over 40 million now at the box office? About 52, 50, 50, I think. 52, right okay. Now. So I haven't been paying that close of attention. But <laughs> $52 million, you know, for domestic box office is really pretty small compared to a major Hollywood hit. Mm -hmm. So while super critically acclaimed um, and, and people are evangelical about the mm -hmm. film, from a c sheer commercial uh, perspective, it's just not that big, mm. um, relatively speaking. But it doesn't mean, um, and, and you know, at Gravitas, again, we, we distribute so many films. I do about 100 documentaries and 200 call them all other genres. I do very few foreign language films. Um, I like them. In my personal life, actually, my wife and I, we've got three little girls. We never, I, I watch Princess Sophia at home pretty much, and, <laughs> and that's, that's it. Um, I, I, and, and when I do get to go see a movie, I want to go to a theatrical experience. I still like that. And we actually saw Parasite at the Cedar Lee even after it was already released on, on home video and mm -hmm. on video on demand, because to me, that's the way you want to go see a film, especially something you want to see, um, that you're excited about seeing. Um, but, uh, so, but at the end of the day, they just haven't historically worked for us. I don't know if it's, uh, yeah, you can, I mean, you can put out the pithy, you know, Americans are lazy, they don't want to read subtitles. Um, I personally find dubs very annoying, mm -hmm. but oh, yeah. it's fantastic though, I mean, it's, it's fascinating you know, when you talk about international distribution, films have historically been bought and sold territory by territory, kind of all rights to a German distributor, all rights to a Spanish distributor, all rights to a French distributor or French-speaking Europe. And all of those territories are dubbed territories. And so, you know, to, to sell a movie there, you've got to have a dub, which are expensive. And, and, and frequently, it just doesn't make economic sense for us to go invest $40,000 in a good pristine Parisian French dub, <laughs> um, which will not work in, I'll, I'll in, do it in for Quebec. Ten, I'll do it for 10. Well, it will not work in Quebec. They want a French-Canadian <laughs> dub in Quebec. But, you know, so those are the, some of the challenges the independent films are, are up against. Um, but as Evan pointed out, you know, with the advent of these, what I call U.S.-based uh, VOD platforms, whether it's Netflix or Amazon or Facebook even now, Google, YouTube with a worldwide footprint, it's fascinating what you can do. You can do these worldwide deals, and we do it frequently with our, our documentaries to Netflix where I'll do 27 languages um, subtitled. Um, so it, it has changed a lot. Hmm. Uh, to, to stay on the content just uh, for, for a brief moment, I, I thought of two other movies when I was doing research for this conversation. One was... The Kite Runner, and the mm -hmm. other was Slumdog Millionaire. 
because it seems like every few years there is a unicorn foreign film that people say, this is amazing. Uh, it has given us an insight into a culture that we don't see normally. And maybe this is the inflection point when, when mass audiences are going to start paying more attention to foreign films and we're going to get more of those insights into other cultures. And this is just kind of a utopia of globalism in film. Uh, but they are still unicorns. We are mm -hmm. still having uh, headlines talking about how unique Parasite was, and we don't see it that often. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, Dave? Well, yeah. yeah, well, uh, Slumdog Millionaire, of course, didn't have the language hurdle because that was in English. Right. So it was an Indian film set in India, but it was, of course, by a British director, Danny Boyle. And uh, so that's a little different. This, I want to say, the th other thing that made Parasite especially unique um, here in Cleveland specifically is as someone who's been working in film distribution or exhibition for decades now, in this market specifically, for whatever reason, Asian films don't usually play very well in Cleveland. We mm. just don't have that kind of support. Our audiences seem to respond more to French films and to German films, but usually anything from whether it's China or South Korea or wherever, they just haven't traditionally done that well, even when they're some of the best reviewed movies of the year. So when I went to see Parasite opening night at the Cedar Lee, and I was it was in a fairly full theater, I was like, "This I've never seen this. This is fantastic!" <laughs> I was so excited that finally people were responding because, for me, South Korea has been one of the most exciting places for film for quite a while. And people that haven't been paying attention to like Park Chan Wook's films and Chang Dong Lee, those are amazing filmmakers. Chang Dong Lee to me is even better than Bong Joon Ho. So write these names down. <laughs> I know. Um, there's a test uh, at yes, the there's end. There's a test yeah. at the end. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they'll win awards at Cannes. Like, uh, you know, Chang Dong Lee won at the uh, Cannes Film Festival a few years ago for his film Poetry, did no business here in the States, mm. did nothing at the Cedar Lee. And it's, but so a film like Parasite that won at Cannes and, and suddenly people were responding to it, it is more of a accessible genre kind of movie in a way. But it, and it's, again, it's a brilliant movie. So uh, it just, to me, was a little bit of a, hopefully a turning point that people are going to start paying attention to other films, specifically from South Korea, because it's one of the, uh, we were talking earlier before the panel about the film festival here in Cleveland coming up. And the festival doesn't really have a whole lot of films from Asia. And I talked to Bill Gensler about that a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And he agreed with me that it's just something that the audience here in Cleveland has traditionally not overly embraced, so you know you program to what the audience wants to see. So hopefully, maybe next year we'll see more of those films uh, at the film festival, and I hope we see more of them, you know, here uh, just at the Cedar Lee and Capitol as well. And even if the films, the the foreign films are, are limited, Michael, there is foreign influence in making certain films. Uh, we were talking about directors earlier. We, we were, and I, I, because I knew I was coming to this panel, I did a little bit of research. In the last ten years, um, best director has been a foreigner um, all but two. Mm -hmm. Well, even Tom Hooper's British, isn't he? Yeah, he's British. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So, okay, yeah. all but one. Yeah. So, <laughs> was Scorsese departed? Um, this is for best director. Yeah, it's over 10 years, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you've got, like, Mexico that would have won it, like, three times? Yep. Is that right? I think, uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's, so mm -hmm. it's, um, so I think from that standpoint, you, you have foreign directors that are definitely um, making a name for themselves um, at the Academy Awards. And, you know, it's interesting. You go, I, we go to the film festivals, we run on the film festival circuit. So it's 
Sundance, followed by Berlin, followed by South by Southwest and Tribeca. And um, you know, th these directors are, are in high regard, high demand, and, and they can command um, uh, with certain production companies. Th they want to be used because they know they're, they're going to be commercial over and over again. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Evan, I wonder if we switch now to actually getting films mm -hmm. made, especially in Cleveland. And I wonder, is there much demand, especially from foreign filmmakers, to come here and want to, to film here? At the end of the day, most of it is bottom line driven. And whether it's here, whether it's New Mexico, whether it's Bulgaria, if they can save money on the bottom line and, and cut off a certain percentage right at the top, that's where production's gonna go. So we are getting, you know, reached out to by, you know, European-based filmmakers, Australian-based filmmakers, people who are, they're looking to produce their project. It, it doesn't matter necessarily where, as long as they have access and they're gonna get value on the dollar. And, you know, it, it's with Netflix, I mean, I hate to keep going back to this, but truth be told, with that, it's just opened up the amount of product that's out there, mm -hmm. that you're not in the situation anymore where, you're, you're forced to make a product because you have to show that you're going to put it in the box office and you're going to make X amount of dollars and that's how to, to you know quantify your success. There's tons of content coming out from all the streamers and again, they're looking for the most economical way to produce a project. So if it's here, you know, we're, we're happy to have them. And, you know, I was talking with someone earlier. I mean, the same happens the other side, that I always bring up the example of the History Channel miniseries a few years ago, Hatfields and McCoys, which is about a West Virginia and, and you know, the fight that went on there. Very American story. Shot in Bulgaria. Because, <laughs> one, it looked like West Virginia, and two, they saved a ton of money. No, we didn't know that watching it, but that it just shows you, and it's the same here. If they can use Cleveland and have it double for any city in the world, they're going to do that again as long as they're getting value on the dollar. So what is the pitch for Northeast Ohio to bring in some of those people? Like, what is the story that you tell them that keeps them interested in what Northeast Ohio has to offer. Yeah, I mean, again, being realistic about the business sense of it, we have to show the value on the dollar first and foremost. And a lot of that comes via the tax, the motion picture uh, and TV tax incentive the state has, which is very competitive with the rest of the country. It's still somewhat limited, and we're working on changing that. But that's going to be the first and foremost, because as much as we want the creators to have a say and the producers, at the end of the day, there are bean counters on, and all due respect to the accountants out there, but <laughs> there are people who, their job, they're not reading the script, they don't care. They care about how are we going to save money. So that's the first thing. And then it's getting them and, and getting them here to show them what Cleveland's about, that it's value on the dollar, that you're going to get good, hardworking people, again, good value on the dollar, access to locations, ease of use, and everything short of a mountaintop and, 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 a, and uh, a desert. So you have every kind of location. You don't have the hurdles that New York or Los Angeles or London or a lot of these places, even Atlanta has a lot of hurdles because they've been in the business for a certain amount of time. They're expecting to get Los Angeles rates and, and to put productions through these hurdles thinking that they, they've earned it. And to some degree, they probably have. But at the same time, they're going to start pricing themselves out, and we're happy to take that business. 
Can and then the third yeah. thing you can do is, if it's a good film, introduce them to Gravitas. Well, that's say, hey, the plan. <laughs> here's a here's a baked-in distribution for you. Look Soup no further. Make it and uh -huh. sell it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, so. that's actually a question I, I was going to ask, Michael, because what, what benefits does being in Cleveland have for you? Because typically the argument for a Los Angeles or a New York is it's its own ecosystem, so you can go down the block and have another kind of company, but what are some of the benefits that, that brought you to Cleveland? So the, the biggest benefit is that my parents live 11 houses down the street and they're great <laughs> babysitters <laughs> uh, for my six-year-old, five-year-old, and three-year-old. That's huge. Priceless. Um, Priceless. I came back for the same reason, for the record. <laughs> and uh, I thankfully have no children. <laughs> but it, you, you joke about it, but it, it goes to, to a bigger picture. Um, L.A. is an expensive place to live. Um, New York is an expensive place to live. San Francisco, expensive. Uh, London, my parent company, we, we have an investment from, from a German firm in Munich, very expensive. Um, and so the quality of life here is better, but not just you know, for us, but for our employees as well. Um, and what we found is, you know, sometimes the grass is you know, preferably always greener in LA. A lot of people come out to LA, they wanna be writers, they wanna be directors, they wanna be producers and they apply for a job in film distribution. And they can talk the talk, and they can kind of walk the walk, but that's not their passion. They really want to be a writer. And so their heart's not going to be in it, because we want, I want bean counters. Mm -hmm. I want people that aren't afraid of a, a bottom line, that aren't afraid of a P&L, that can be um, very creative in terms of marketing and very creative in terms of distribution. Do we pull the Apple iTunes lever before the Amazon lever to give them a week you know, exclusive on EST? I mean, that. Those are, you know, very creative decisions in distribution that you have to come across. And so, you know, we'd have some turnover from time to time. It happens. In Cleveland, we've had these employees that have just stayed with us. And most of them are from, came from Cleveland State Film School. And they are sharp as any employee in L.A. and loyal. And we're the only game in town. They're not going to jump anywhere else. But, <laughs> um, but, but truly loyal and really smart and pick it up. And, you know, I, I wish... I long for the days of Continental Airlines. I'm sure many of us do here. But it's still pretty easy to get out to L.A. And I go out, you know, probably 15 to 20 times a year. And it's not hard. Um, but Netflix doesn't want to see me every day, to be honest with you. Um, they, they know who we are. They know what we're, per, you know, putting out. They want to see our avails. We have a monthly call. I'll see them maybe quarterly or at South by Southwest or something like that. So you can absolutely, you know, do it from Cleveland and, and you know, great employees. And, yeah, uh, I was so happy to get rid of that rent in El Segundo that was $18,000 a month. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm just reminded of a quote from uh, that John Waters had many years ago because people always ask him, like, why would you stay in Baltimore? And he's like, wouldn't America be a more interesting place if everyone stayed where they were supposed to be? Like, he's like, if you had to do the David Letterman show, you had to go to Indiana. You know, so it's like, and I was like, that's so true. It's like, there's, there's great things all over this country, and people can make a life, and you can have an amazing business anywhere. You don't have to be one of the two. America's not just two cities, so. <laughs> that's true. Um, I, all of you have mentioned Netflix quite a bit, and I, I wonder if we can uh, focus in on that because it seems like our media environment now is, is so volume-based that it's all about more content, and yeah, people would like it to be good, but we need more, you know? We need more of the things. We need new things on the Netflix. We need shinier things to, to distract us and cool buttons and gizmos. Um, 
How does that affect stability, I think, in, in each of your realms? Because you each represent a very different part mm -hmm. of this business, but you're all being affected by this pull to have more stuff and cooler stuff, and, and it's a competition for eyes. So maybe, Dave, you want to start? Sure. I mean, that's a, a common question that we get, uh, you know, that people are people still do want to leave their house and go to movies. Mm -hmm. And even Michael had said, like, they wanted the theatrical experience to see Parasite. It is a very different thing from, heaven forbid, watching, you know, some, you know, watching Lawrence uh, of Arabia on your on your uh, iPhone is not the same <laughs> as seeing Lawrence of Arabia on a big screen. So I think people understand that. There are certain films that just warrant that kind of, you know, cinematic experience, you know, a shared communal experience that you get a movie theater, you can't duplicate uh, at home for the most part. And... When Netflix became a, a growing competitor for, for eyeballs, I think now what I've noticed just as a consumer, and this is just purely anecdotally, I, Netflix has done an amazing, some amazing stuff, and I loved you know, Irishman and Marriage Story were great movies. I actually just canceled my Netflix account because I wasn't watching anything on it. It was like just visual noise every time I went on there. It was like, there's just too much stuff, too and much. It's, yeah. it's just there's so there's almost like too much, you know. It's not well curated enough because they're trying to keep everything on there at once, right. and it's just my eyeballs couldn't even process it. So I feel like people look at movie theaters and they go, okay, well, what are our choices tonight? You know, yeah, you might only have six, eight, ten movies to pick from at the Cedarly this this week, but you know that they've been curated and they're some of the best movies that are out. So you know immediately that your choice is probably going to be a more informed and better choice just because there's a reason why there's fewer choices, because they're better. Hmm. So, uh, and to that, that doesn't mean that not every movie that plays in the movie theater is better than something that's streaming, because that is 100% not true. <laughs> and, you know, but I always tell people, movies are subjective. And when someone comes up and asks me for their, my opinion, like, oh, should I see this? Unless I know the person well enough, yeah. I very rarely tell them what they should and shouldn't see, because, you know, the movies I like are not the same movies my mom's going to like, yeah. and, uh, and vice versa. Although she loves a true story, she just loves a true story. As long as it's a true story, she doesn't care. Um, based on a true story, does that count? Based on true, as long as it's a true story, she thinks they're documentaries, I think, then. So whatever <laughs> happened is, is real. But I think Netflix has been a, com a competitor for us for a while, but we're surviving. And even whenever a film like um, Irishman is streaming... At the same time as we're playing it, people are still choosing to come see it in the theater. Parasite, which has been out on video and streaming for a month now, I think, mm -hmm. is still going strong, and people are coming to see it still. So I feel like, you know, people, it's a different, it's the same, but it's different. So I think that while we're competing, we're offering something different. Yeah. Michael? I mean, yeah, I mean, Netflix, you know, revolutionized um, so many things in distribution and, mm -hmm. and I, what I my first lesson, you know, was that the, the genius of Hollywood is that they get you to buy the same thing seven different times. <laughs> so I think about it like in terms of Forrest Gump. You know, I saw it in a theater, and then maybe I saw it on an airplane, and then maybe I saw it on HBO mm -hmm. or DVD, and then I saw it in a hotel room, and maybe then it was the movie, the NBC movie night of the week, and each one of those um, exhibitions or exploitations is skinning the cat. And what Netflix has done is jump the line. And things that go straight to Netflix now, it's interesting. So that's why they spend so much money on content. They kind of have to make that producer or that production company whole plus a little bit of yeah. profit. 
um, but it doesn't necessarily allow it to break out. I still think you know theatrical is still best for word of mouth. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, we had a d documentary on Netflix earlier this year. It was a kind of a scary one um, called "Abducted in Plain Sight." I don't know if anybody saw that, but that's it, it went viral. But I, I feel like mm -hmm. if we would have done a bigger theatrical first, it would have even been bigger. So it cuts both ways. It's also you know it it limits your upside though because if it's going to go to Netflix and if it's an original for Netflix. You're kind of one and done. You've made your film. You've made your TV series. You've sold it. Now Netflix controls the worldwide rights, maybe in perpetuity or for 25 years or something like that, as opposed to being able to, you know, wheel and deal and and and, and exploit this window and then exploit that window. And the window that's, you know, what's causing a lot of this is is what people call cord cutting. So there is there's cord cutting going on actually. Uh, AT&T U-verse happens to be a, even though they're a telco, a cable operator in Cleveland, Ohio, and they announced uh, today that they're not putting, bringing out any more customers. They're, they've launched this new thing called AT&T U-verse TV, which is an over-the-top, um, you know, uh, product, not unlike Hulu TV or YouTube TV, where you don't need that that cable anymore. And so people are ultimately will kind of, I mean, Netflix is here to stay, Amazon Prime is here to stay. Hulu and Disney Plus are now here to stay. But there's a lot more of these services, and people, I think, will eventually just be like, ah, I can't do another four bucks a month or another seven right. bucks a month. And so now what's really interesting is, like, what's old is new again. And we have what's called ad-sponsored video on demand, where you watch the content, you watch the TV show, you watch the movie, and guess what? You've got to watch commercials, just like when I was growing up. And you had to sit there and watch commercials, and I love it because it's a new revenue stream. It's all non-exclusive, and you know, for someone who has a library of a couple thousand films, it allows me to breathe new life into my films on new platforms. These things you've heard of, maybe Pluto or Tubi mm -hmm. or the Roku channel or Distro TV or Fubo. Or I mean, <laughs> these are all Quibi. <laughs> yeah, that's the new one. <laughs> totally. So, um, you know. It's interesting, but that is again, it's free. Yeah, and so hmm. interesting. Yeah. Evan, any any thoughts on that? Well, you know, for us, it, at the end of the day, more content's a good thing for us because we want to encourage production to be here. Last year, the number that's being thrown around is that there were 532 scripted hours of television last year. I feel like every day I'm meeting someone and they're like, have you seen this show? And I'm like, I've never even heard of this show, and <laughs> I've missed six seasons of it, and. But there is a lot of content, and I actually read an article last week that said uh, it was a survey done of people who are who are enjoying this content that they still want more. Um, I personally think at some point there will be a contraction there. There's going to be a merger. Something's going to you know level it out. But at least right now, the economics are supporting all of these shows. They're being created. They're running. And I actually read another interesting article that you know sh the streamers, Netflix, Amazon. They're really only incentivized to run a series for two to three seasons because they're not going to pull in new members with that. They're better off running a show for two to three years. They've got you hooked. And then create a new series that's going to bring new customers in rather than keep investing in a show that's only going to cost them more money. And frankly, they're pot committed to a degree, but they got their audience. They don't need to expand that. They've hooked you. So... Again, I think at some point there's going to be a point where people can't consume all this con content at a way that's making money for the you know the production companies. But at least as of right now, there's a ton of stuff being produced. And for a film commission like us, 
we really we get a series here like a city like Pittsburgh did that is something we can we can hang our hat on and really watch the industry grow because you're keeping people here for several months out of the year you're building up a production base you're getting people who aren't normally based here to be here to enjoy what we have to offer and then it really grows from there so that's the upside to this but I, I you know when it comes to you know the film world and it, it does dilute stuff. I don't think any one person can watch all of the content that's out there. And if you can, my hat's off to you. As Michael said, I have two little children too. Paw Patrol, um, I watch a lot of that. You know, I, I, I can't personally keep up, but I like seeing that there's this constant generation of new ideas, new series being greenlit, and it's just more work. I, you know, I, working out there, for so long, people are clamoring for opportunities, and now they're starting to come together, and it doesn't matter where you are. The barriers to entry have gotten a lot lower, so you can produce a series here. So that's what we're trying to really you know, sink our teeth into. This uh, topic is so huge. We've tried to give you kind of a broad uh, overview of some of the aspects of uh, the global political economy of film, but if you have uh, questions or uh, uh, want to want us to address something that we didn't get to, feel free to come up to the microphone now. Yes, young man. All right, <laughs> thank you. Um, Dave, I wanted to ask you a question that, that we had talked about sort of in the lead up. When I look around at the theaters around Cleveland and I look at the what's showing at Cinemark Valley View, I see that they're showing Bollywood movies mm -hmm. every week. That's part of their regular rotation. So... We've been talking about sort of this switch to cut cord, uh, cord cutting and Netflix and focusing there, but I, I know we had talked a little bit about this sort of movement to foreign language films taking a foothold in American theaters. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you could talk about sure. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one thing that people don't understand uh, when it comes, I mean, there's so much about this business that makes no sense. There's no screwier business than being in the movie exhibition. Uh, I'll just use this as an example. Um, first off, we don't ultimately control what we're showing. It's really up to the distributors that decide when and where their films are going to play because it's their film. So I'm, I'm pointing at Michael for everybody listening to this that doesn't have the visual. Uh, so like if Gravitas says, no, we don't want to play our movie at Cedar Lee, then we can't play that movie at the Cedar Lee no matter what we do. So we have to plead our case all the time for that. And for films like uh, when we talk about Bollywood movies, yeah, Valley View and the Atlas Eastgate uh, Cinema out in Mayfield, they play those films all the time. And we had been trying very hard to get a chance to show like, hey, let's engage that audience at one of our locations. And the distributors wouldn't even let us try. Uh, we were able to, for briefly, I think we had two Bollywood films that we played briefly at Tower City from Fox, uh, 20th Century Foxes. Um, they have an Indian label uh, under the that banner, although I guess that's now Disney, since Disney basically owns us all. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, seriously, they uh -huh. just keep buying up companies. Yes. It's amazing. But anyway, so uh, they, they have that uh, that they have that distribution leg that's just handling uh, Bollywood titles and Indian films. And uh, if you don't match their uh, model of like, oh, you didn't play this movie, 
and that movie did well there, so you can't play this next movie that's like that movie. And, you know, we go through that every week, every time we try to play a movie at the Capitol or something, they go, well, but we're using this movie as the model, so we're looking at the 10 theaters that that movie played in, and the Capitol didn't play that movie, so we're not playing your movie. Well, well, we didn't play that other movie, so how do you know this movie's not gonna work here? It's just a catch-22 kind of uh, situation for us. It's very frustrating, um, but, I will say uh, foreign language films, it's not unusual for them to have like platform releases where they test the movie out in New York and LA and they see how it does before they decide how many other theaters they're gonna be expanding it to, uh, which used to be because of 35 millimeter film and the expense of that. You know, it used to cost about $2,000 to make a print. Now it costs, you know, just the cost of a hard drive and uploading a file onto a hard drive. So it's much more economical. But for some reason, the studios are still adhering to that platform release strategy, um, which I don't fully agree with because that's why here in Cleveland, we have to wait sometimes a month before we get a film that's been playing for uh, a while in New York and LA. And um, certain films, there was a film that played a few years ago, it's one of the top grossing foreign language films of all times called Instructions Not Included. It was a Mexican film, a Spanish language film that opened up and it was in the top five in America and it wasn't playing in any theaters in Cleveland. It was like the number four movie, and it was not anywhere in Cleveland because uh, I think it was a Lionsgate film, and they had primarily just played more, you know, Latino-heavy areas like Texas and California and Florida, and, uh, you know, Ohio wasn't on the radar. We didn't get it for a few weeks later. That movie ended up making over $50 million, you know, but it just f took a while before it came here to Cleveland because, again, they're looking, oh, these are the, this is where this movie like this before played, and it didn't play anywhere in Cleveland, so we're not even looking at theaters in Cleveland. So it wasn't until the movie made so much money that they even looked at Cleveland as a market, let alone one of our theaters specifically. So it's just this weird aspect of the business that people don't understand. We get, I get emails all the time, almost weekly, from people like acting like I'm denying them the right to see some movie. It's like, I would love to be showing that movie, but they won't let us, so. Mm -hmm. There's one other, I, I don't claim to be a Bollywood expert at all, but um, some of this has to do with, you know, the event too and, and piracy. Mm. Um, so a lot of these films, especially the Bollywood films, are released day and date, is the technical term, with the release in India. And um, we had a few of these films, and I'm blanking on the Bollywood studio, but it was a major, and it was bought by Disney. This is like 2008, but these films, we got them after the theatrical releases. We were so excited because we had these films that had done multiple seven figures at the box office. We were like, this must translate into a big video on demand mm -hmm. sale on Comcast. No, it did not. Um, I think that audience went to see the films in theaters. They were trained mm -hmm. to go see them in theaters. It was an event, um, whether it was family or cultural or whatever it was, um, did not translate all the way through. Um, but but piracy is is a is a big thing, and that's why um, that was one of the cool things when you, you could go globally at, with Apple. You know, we had a documentary called For the Love of Spock. It was a documentary about Leonard Nimoy. So uh, Star Trek and, you know, beloved character. So people love Star Trek around the world. That would have been dangerous for us to release that, you know, territory by territory, staggered by months because it would have been pirated right. immediately. It still was pirated, but at least people had a legit legal alternative that was convenient to download on, on iTunes. And so that really, we think, helped us being able to release all at the same time. And it's Spock. And, well, Spock. and real quick, too, I read today that they're expecting, because of the coronavirus and everything, that there's going to be upwards of a $5 billion loss in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. 
be, mostly because of what's going to happen in China. And a big part of it is these films that were going to be released at the same time as they're being released here are already out in the American market or in the world market, but not in China. So they're going to pirate it. So all those films that they were going to go to the box office for, are, they're just going to watch at home. So it is a major, major issue when there is a, a discrepancy in release dates. Next question. Yeah. Yes, uh, two questions. One, I was talking to a couple of you earlier. Uh, because of the international scope now, do you see more uh, technicians, more filmmakers wishing to immigrate to the United States? And number two, uh, do you think what's going on is good? Because we seem to get a broad cultural view now. We can watch a movie and we learn about a culture that we never would have learned before. I mean, I, you know, I, I was representing actors for years, and we had a lot that would come from, you know, London or, or the EU or Australia, and, and, you know, L.A. and New York were still to a certain degree the epicenter of at least the decision-making and a lot of the production, so there was value. But the truth is, I mean, it is becoming a, it is a global market, so, um, you know, yes, there are foreign filmmakers who are going to want to come here and, and set up shop. But, you know, as, as uh, Bong Joon-hoon shown, you can make the film in your home country and still, if you get that international distribution, you can go outside. So I think, you know, there's still that interest because, again, this is, you know, Hollywood and New York are still going to be somewhat that, that central focal point. But uh, I said earlier, those barriers to entry are getting lower. So it is possible to make your film in Mexico, make it anywhere, and get it seen. Uh, but I, I think no matter what, there's always going to be the appeal, and, it, and it's interesting uh, how fast immigration and some of these government entities can move when a production company like Disney is calling saying, we need this guy to have a visa in three days. Um, you know, you get six to eight weeks. I watched it happen in 48 hours. That all because a guy needed to play a vampire in New York City. <laughs> Swear to God. Uh, but they got him his green card. So... It is, it, it's an important part of the business, but um, I think it's changing a little bit at the same time. That push that you must be in America if you're going to be successful, that's no longer the case. And to the second part of his question, I, I obviously think that all these, uh, the success of uh, Parasite obviously introduced people to a lot of culture that they'd never seen before. And just like the films that are filmed here in Cleveland, like Queen and Slim that was partially shot here. Mm -hmm. When that gets to play internationally, there are people that have maybe never heard of Cleveland, but now they've heard of Cleveland. So it works both Great ways. Yep. So, you know, we're getting uh, represented in other cultures just like we are being exposed to other cultures through film. Great point. Great point. Yeah. Next question. Hi. Um, this question <laughs> can go to anyone who wants to answer it. Um, I know Slumdog Millionaire was briefly mentioned in how. That was a movie filmed in India, but it wasn't really produced in by Indian producers. Um, and how it was slightly problematic and kind of how it portrayed India. And a lot of people in India were upset about that and kind of how it profited off of poverty there. So I was wondering how, um, I guess, whenever we're looking at producing foreign films and making them, kind of the responsibility we have in... Um, making sure those portrayals are accurate and making sure the people in that country or in that culture feel good about the films being produced about them. It's, it's becoming even more important. Um, and again, I saw this uh, on the talent side that 
being real in who you're casting is integral to the projects. That there, are, you know, a great example right now is Mulan is set to come out, I think, next month. Mm -hmm. And we represented a wide array of Asian actors, Japanese, Filipino, uh, Chinese. They were specifically requiring Chinese actors for these roles. And we always came out and said, I, you can't put that in the writing. That's, that's mm -hmm. discrimination. But they know that if they cast a Japanese actor or actress in a role, and it's a Chinese story or vice versa, they're going to get pushback because now the feedback is amplified. Twitter, Facebook, it's all out there. And we've seen it. There were films, uh, I can't think of the, the one recently, but um, or the title of it, but uh, what was it? Um, uh, American Girl Playing a Hawaiian Actor. So it's more important than ever that they do hit that realism. Are you going to please everybody? Of course not. Um, but it's becoming more and more important because they are going to get backlash if they don't stay true to some of those roots. A lot of the films we distribute, even if there's controversy to it, hey, that's great, because no one's heard of my it's film. Press, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the more the merrier. Talk good, talk bad, just you know, spell the name right and tell them where you can find it. Um, but no, you know, people are very serious. I mean, look, we, we deal with, with creatives, and... and that's always a challenge. Um, there's no lack of making films. That's the one thing you can count on in Hollywood. There will be more films made in 2020 than there were in 2019. There will be more in 2021 than in 2020. The challenge is some of these people are using you know, a 2008 playbook for a 2020 reality, and they come and they say, what do you think of my documentary? And spent a million dollars on it. I said, it's beautiful, but there's no way I can make you whole. Do you understand this? If you give me your film, you will lose money. But we're going to put it out there far and wide. We're going to treat it, you know, very well. We'll market it. But the reality is, you know, and, but these people have spent it's their it's their baby, and they spent all this time, and their baby's of course beautiful, and um, but there's a lot of them out there. So those are some tough conversations to have sometimes. Mm -hmm. But they, you know, you have to be delicate and treat it's people work. It's, it's their passion, you know, and they raise money for it for years, and it doesn't go right, and they've got war stories about it. So thank you. Next question, yeah. Hello. Hello. Uh, my question maybe comes with more of a selfish angle, I guess, than most of the other questions. But, um, you know, we talk about um, international filmmaking and um, what kind of uh, weight that holds in the perspective of all filmmaking all over the world. Um, a lot of movies these days are sold internationally before they are in America um, and looking at that as like a local filmmaker um, and in Cleveland um, I guess what <laughs> what um what kind of story do you think would be told internationally um, you know if, if you're looking you know from like a pop like a pop culture perspective like Cleveland is the home of rock music they've like really fostered rock and roll and how to market rock and roll. If you were going to market a movie internationally, um, what kind of movie would you make? And um, I don't know. That's kind of a strange question, but uh, just curious. Like, that's a, It's a great question um, because it goes that you're talking about pre-sales. And there were more common a few years ago than they are, but it, it ebbs and flows. So if you want to do a great pre-sale... Get, <laughs> get, get Nick Cage. Get Nick Cage. Talent, talent, recognizable, yep. global mm -hmm. talent. Yep. 
Do not make a comedy that has, you know, American-centric humor. Uh, shoot 'em up action plays a lot better than than drama. Mm-hmm. Um, these are just and 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 make a really spend some money on a really slick piece of art and a one sheet and put it up at your booth and the distributors will come in and they'll they'll buy it. Um, especially it doesn't just happen. There's a track record. This happens over years and you've pre-sold a number of movies and. Um, his name at Relativity. <laughs> oh, Ryan Kavanaugh. Ryan Kavanaugh may or may not have done this very successfully for many years, but he, he was doing it and he was financing and he was, you know, he'd come out and he'd have his whole budget financed um, before they even, you know, shot in, in the States mm-hmm. with foreign uh, pre sales. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're talking about, are you talking about putting Cleveland, kind of getting that story? I mean, at, at the end of the day... Like, it, if it, you well, could also use Cleveland as, like, a background. For well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's content-driven. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a compelling story, look, you want to make a commercial for Cleveland, that's a whole separate thing. But if you want to make a, a you know, story that resonates, and, and this is just my opinion, I mean, New York and Chicago, a lot of times, they act as a character because they're the backdrop. That it's not integral to the story necessarily outside of where the individual characters are walking and going. And Cleveland can be that. You write a compelling story where Cleveland is it, it, at least the city that's, that the story's taking place. At the end of the day, what's on the page, the story itself is what's going to matter. And as Michael's saying, yes, internationally, you do have to go broad-based. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'd like to say a lot of the character-driven independent films that we gravitate towards would be successful internationally, but probably not. It's stuff that has to translate and has to make sense on, on uh, culturally and, and linguistically, and that's tough to do. Um, so, you know, but I stand by content rules all. You know, if, if you are passionate about what's on the page, that's where it has to start. Thank you. Hello, I have a slightly different question. It deals with the Chinese influence in films. I've heard where some of the foreign films, oh, we're gonna have a Chinese villain. No, 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 you can't sell that in China. You'll have to have a Mm -hmm. Japanese or Korean victim or some other victim or bad bad boy, bad person that China, no. You're not gonna show it in China. We won't fund it. If you have a Chinese as a bad person, we're only good people. Thank you. Thank you. Well. The, the Chinese market is unique in that because it is a, a, a communist country that has more strict government controls, that is why some of those things, because it, you can't, and they also have cultural limits. I forget how many, do you know? Like I can't remember. It's a very it's small It's a very limit. small percentage yeah. of the films that they, you know, there's like a cap. Like it's, it's something system. like, yeah, it's like mm-hmm. only like 30 U.S. films a year can even be distributed there. So if you know you're only competing with thir- for 30 spots and your budget is going to be $200 million, you need to make sure that you're going to be able to get some of that back because film is the most expensive art. Yes, it is an art form, but it's also a very commercial art form, uh, especially when you go on those economies of scale when you've got a movie that's costing upward of $200 million. So that is why sometimes there will absolutely be some of those uh, script changes potentially, or like I said, they might have a slightly different version that will play in China where they expand a role a little bit more to play up to that audience. So, And conversely, some of these films are co-financed with Chinese businesses, and they might look at it as like, well, the American cut, we're playing up, you know, that this has more Nicolas Cage in it in America. I don't know, so, yeah. How, 
how many films are recut for for things like that? Say it's a, a Chinese movie. Uh, do you cut out mentioning Taiwan or something like that? Or well, it, I think well, it's definitely ahead. censorship. Yeah, yeah. Definitely it's, it's, it's got to get past yeah. the censorship, right. you know, bureau, mm -hmm. which is very muddy how that process works. I mean, outside of the thirty or so, right. that quota goes up and down. Then every once in a while, it's like open the floodgates and they'll take stuff on video on demand for um, uh, Tencent or Ichi-E, mm -hmm. these like major platforms. And you know the rule of thumb there is get paid first before you deliver the film. Mm -hmm. um, but then beyond that, it's like get it in, and then then it goes like oh we have to get it through censorship. Mm -hmm. Like well who's doing that and right. how does that work? In India, you'd think that like our U.S. independent films would play well there because English language should work. Censorship is very strict in India. If you have a character you know smoking in a in a film, that's a no go. Um, and, and it has to be rated. Whereas in the U.S., mm -hmm. we, most of our films that we release are unrated or not rated because it's an extra expense to get it rated by the MPAA. It doesn't really help unless you're going to go really wide. You're saying your films specifically. My films film specifically, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. um, we do rate some films, and sometimes they come rated, but um, it doesn't really help and when you're counting yeah. the cost. I think that's yeah. less... Someone else had asked me about the rating system, and I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of the MPAA. I understand it serves a role, but I also don't understand what, you know, creature gore and uh, historical smoking, what that... That's, <laughs> those are legitimate smoking. reasons why things are getting rated like PG-13 now because of historical smoking. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> but um, That was my band in college. It should yeah. be. It's a good name for a band. We were good. We were good. That's a good one. I bet you rocked. You could have gotten a gig here. You could do a reunion show at the Happy Dog. That's my hope. Um, I was future Sean. drinking. <laughs> but those... Um, no, I completely lost my train. I'm sorry. No, sorry. It was too no, good. I'm it thinking was, about your band and how amazing they were and how I wish I still had that cassette. No. Um, <laughs> you're going to have to get control of this again, Tony. I'm sorry. There Excellent. We're getting rowdy up here. <laughs> Next question. Yes. Hi. I was just wondering if the global film economy has been any kinder to women directors or showrunners than the national film economy has been. Great question. Yeah, we, we've got... Um, yeah, Michael. Mm -hmm. We're trying. I mean, we, we've got a great film... Um, out of Sundance two years ago, 100% fresh and rotten tomatoes called Half the Picture. And it's the story, it's a documentary about female directors and um, how they have not been treated fairly for, for many, many years. Um, but now it's, it's definitely a selling point. Um, I think audiences are looking for diverse voices and, um, and you know, are, are, is it kinder? No, but I, it goes back to what Evan was saying. It, if it's good content, it sells. Mm -hmm. And um, if we can add that it's, it's a great uh, rising uh, female voice, that definitely helps. Um, and uh, we've championed. I, there was a there was a period I could go back. If you go, you have to go back and look at the gravitas, like Facebook or Twitter account, where we had I don't know what it was. Ten out of the top twenty independent films uh, on Apple iTunes, and I think eight of them were all female. Directors, we were, you know, championing that. Awesome, mm, good. Thank you. Do you have a question? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, that there were these uh, theaters, Atlas and uh, uh, Valley View, I think, mm -hmm. that were playing uh, Bollywood movies and uh, uh, I think some Chinese, Arabic, and Indian. Well, the Indian Bollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, 
was is this more of a, a current trend and is it because these uh, ethnic groups live out in those areas yeah uh, the the simple answer to that is yes for the most part most people go to see movies that are near where they they live so um, but Valley View since it is kind of the biggest theater in the market and Atlas Eastgate because they've kind of established that audience and there's a uh, you know there's a larger Indian population down in like Parma area as well and that part of town but uh, they they really are um, like you're like Michael was saying they are it's culturally, it's still very much part of Indian culture and families to go to see the movies together and they become these big kind of events. And we've shown a few of them sometimes there used to be before there were these um, distributors that were doing a lot more day and date um, releases to fight piracy like Michael was talking about. We actually had some local kind of, for lack of a better term, we'll call them film promoters that would rent the theaters to show these movies maybe like once a month. And uh, when we used to operate the theater in Solon, they would regularly do that and they'd sell out all 300 seats because it would be this big event for their community to come out and it was a big social kind of experience that was kind of concentrating that audience. But they've also done very, very well um, just playing regularly at Atlas and at uh, Valley View. And, um, and I know Valley View has showed, I think Valley View showed uh, The Wandering Earth, which was a Chinese disaster movie. I think that's the title of it, right? The uh, one, isn't that what that, uh, do you remember? Yeah. yeah, yeah, Wandering Earth, which is a, I love a disaster movie, and that's a great one because it's so over the top. They turn the entire planet into a, they have to move Earth out of the way of stuff, so they turn it into a spaceship and put rockets on it, and they're just nice. removing the entire planet to a whole other place in the universe. So uh, that one played at Valley View, but we didn't play that. And those are more mainstream kind of popcorn movies from those countries. The films that tend to play at the film festival a lot of times or the films that we play at the Cedar Lee are the more sort of um, better kind of critically received movies. They're not always the mainstream kind of genre films like those, even though I'm, I'm a big fan of, I say always watch a Russian action movie if you can watch a Russian action movie just for that experience, you know. Okay, but uh, so this is a, a current trend, yeah. Logan, yeah. Uh, because the populations are growing? Or, or they're sustaining that they're they're continuing to support those movies at those theaters, so they're continuing to book those movies. I mean, if no one was going to see those movies there, they would not be playing those movies there anymore. Okay, and what what about in in general as far as the um, uh, mainstream throughout the country? Was it the, the same dynamics? Uh, I, like I, I can't speak to that, but I would imagine probably is true, just because specifically for Bollywood and Indian films, they sometimes will even crack the national, like if you look on Box Office Mojo, you'll see one of them cracking the top 20 in the U.S. or something, and so they're obviously playing in quite a few theaters and doing well. But if you go to the movies now, too, you notice they're showing ads for sporting events, for orchestra performances, for different mm -hmm. type of large-scale performances, because, and obviously you can speak more about this, but theaters have to drive people to come in. So if, if Bollywood is what's getting people there, then it's worth showing. If orchestra performances are getting people there, then it's worth showing because theater owners need to you know evolve as well in, in given the current market because the home product has is, is gotten as good as it, it does and there's uh, nothing that will ever replace the theater, but they need to drive more people there. So I think that speaks to part of why they you have a – and, wide and, and to that point, know, we've got the Cat Video Fest playing over at the Cedar Lee yes. because people love cat videos. And if you've never seen cat videos on a big screen with 300 people, it's a lot of fun. And you guys sell that out, too. It sells yep. out. Yeah, we had we just added two more shows because Is the other shows sold out. 
Uh, thank, thank you. You can talk afterward. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, everybody, for coming out and spending Super Tuesday here. Thank you. Have a good night.